Hey folks, this is Abe Shreve and welcome to the Choose Difficult Podcast. The path to success is not easy and here we explore the stories of those who choose difficult and change the world they live in. All right, it's been a minute. We are big believers in the methodology of an incredible New York Times bestselling book written by my partners in business, Gary Keller and Jay Papazon, called The One Thing. I'm sharing this with you now because we hit the pause button on our podcast to focus on our one thing and launch a brand new program called the Millionaire Business Network, and it is really going gangbusters. But we didn't forget about you, and today we are back with a very special treat. Last November, so this would be November of 2021, a gentleman named Daryl Cardone reached out to me. He had read the book, The One Thing, and I had spoken at a conference that they held on the importance of critical questions, asking the right types of questions. Daryl Cardone is in the Navy and was about to go on a three-month deployment as the commanding officer of a battleship. I'm going to read to you some of his resume because it's, it's important to understand his story. Now, let me just say this right here at the outset. Today, you have the opportunity to hear the learning journey and the leadership journey of Daryl Cardone. Now, what we talk about today is the leadership journey of one extraordinary gentleman. Nothing that we say reflects any official position of the Navy. And as a spoiler alert, we're not going to share any trade secrets of what it is that Daryl Cardone does on his aircraft carrier or with his crew, other than the leadership lessons and the things that he does to create harmony and unity and an incredible culture. I'm fascinated by Daryl's work history by his leadership development. In fact, here's just a couple of things. He earned a bachelor's in music and music education from Wilkes University. But he went on to earn his commission through the Officer Candidate School Program in 95. He's also graduated from Top Gun as an air intercept controller, and he completed the Navy's Carrier Airborne Early Warning Weapons School. He's also completed over 2,800 flight hours and made over 700 carrier-arrested landings. Now, for those that don't know what I'm talking about, that means he's landed on aircraft carriers over 700 times. He's flown more than 120 combat missions in support of operations Deliberate Forge, Southern Watch, Enduring Freedom, and Iraqi Freedom. And this fall, he's slated to become the commanding officer of the USS Ronald Reagan, which set sail out of Yokosuka, Japan. I mean, this guy is a decorated combat leader in the Navy. Daryl grew up loving sports, and he had great parents. In fact, he told me that they had a family business. My father was a teacher. He taught business at Northwest Area High School and also was a proprietor of a neighborhood pizzeria. And my mother was a nurse at Nanakoke Hospital. And, you know, I I think both of those affected uh, or had an impact on, uh, on the way I work and on my future service. I played baseball growing up uh, in basketball, and I was very into sports up until the point that I heard uh, Eddie Van Halen play the electric guitar. And from that point on, my, you know, my, my sole focus became uh, music. From there, I attended Wilkes University uh, to study music, you know, got my bachelor in music degree in music education. And, you know, growing up, there was only two things I was really interested in, uh, in doing as a career. One was to 
tour the world in a band and the other was to be a special agent in either the FBI or the United States Secret Service. And as I started to uh, pursue the music track, I had come to the conclusion that, you know, that wasn't going to be the way that I went. And, you know, as I had conversations with the FBI and Secret Service recruiters, there was a government hiring freeze at the beginning of the Clinton administration. And at that point, when I said, what is the next best thing I can do, they had said to get a commission in the military. And, you know, my father had served in the army. Uh, he was a supply sergeant during Korea at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And I had a number of uncles, you know, both my mother's brothers. And, you know, um, I had a nanny that I was, I was very close with. And, you know, a lot of her brothers had served as well in World War II in Vietnam. And, uh, but their generation didn't talk about it a lot, all except one uncle that I had who was always trying to convince me to serve in the Navy, but I had no interest. I was either interested in, you know, baseball or later, later the guitar. But it was once that Secret Service recruiter had said to me, get a commission in the military, every conversation, you know, my uncle had with me at that point came back. And when I finally went to him and said, hey, I'm thinking about applying for Navy officer candidate school, I think it was the happiest day of his, you know, of his, uh, his adult life. And I just so vividly remember him saying, you could serve 20 years and, you know, and retire from there. And, uh, you know, from then on, I, you know, I started to serve and 26 years later, here I am. Daryl was greatly influenced by his parents. He said that his Work ethic that he has today, he learned working in the family business. He learned that from his dad. He says the empathy that he uses as a leader, especially a leader in very intense moments, comes from his mother as a nurse. And his ultimate goal was to join a band and, and travel the world and, and you know be a, a world-famous guitar player. But that actually gave way to his desire to serve in the military early September of 1995 that I got into officer candidate school was there through was commissioned on December 8th and then started flight school in Pensacola in, you know, through 96 and 97. And I reported to my first fleet unit in 1998 to get ready for my first deployment on the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower. I asked Daryl, what was it like to finally be through all of this training and to actually get your first assignment and to step on the first ship ready to go. It was really exciting, you know, to, you know, to become operational in Navy aviation, there's Naval aviation. There's a lot of training that goes into that. And certainly once, once you make it out into the fleet, you go through this training, training and readiness cycle that ultimately certifies you as deployment ready. And you know, when I walked aboard the ship, I was, I was so excited. You know, I felt like a legitimate fleet aviator who was ready to, you know, get out there and re-earn my wings every single day. And I just remember this, this funny story, you know, I was brand new to the squadron and the guy that I had gone through most of flight training with also went to the same place. And we had this moment where we walked into our stateroom on the ship and, you know, we picked last, but we ended up in this little, this little two-man staterooms, which for folks of our, you know, relatively low seniority was, it was not common to end up in a, in a two-man room. And, and, 
you know, we're putting our sea bags down and we're just so excited. And I was like, wow, this is so great that we have this room hard to ourselves. I, I don't know why anyone didn't, you know, didn't want to take this because everyone else moved to these other rooms with either four people or six people or didn't have enough space. And we just thought we were the luckiest two guys that could be. And then the air wing flew aboard. And I realized that our stateroom was right underneath one of the jet blast deflectors that comes up and down and literally like six feet above our head. The first day we were there, an F-18 went to military power and it was like shaking the entire room. And the two of us just looked at each other and, you know, we said, you know, I guess this is why nobody wanted this room. In my mind, I can see them walk out of their room after they realized why no one else wanted this. And I'm sure there were a group of more advanced and experienced enlistees that were probably just laughing. But Daryl's assignment would get serious really quick. In fact, he would be the first off the carrier to go and assess the combat landscape. I'm a mission commander in the E-2 Hawkeye. You know, we certainly operate and train a lot with uh, with the strike fighters from the carrier, but my primary role with them was as an air intercept controller. That means my job was to detect, identify, and communicate to the fighter aircraft what what was happening. It was to describe this ever changing situation, uh, you know, as as both aircraft close at twice the speed of sound. It's a command and control aircraft, so it's it's the eyes of the fleet. So the E-2 will launch first off of the carrier, go up, build everyone else's situational awareness out as far as our eyes can see, and then the rest of the you know force comes up and you know launches to conduct their missions after that. But our job is to you know maintain awareness of what is what's out there and to tell everyone else. Not having experience in this kind of environment, this military kind of war-ready environment, in my mind, I see them at every second ready to just go into the heat of battle. And I'm certain there's a part of that that is the case. However, there's a lot of other things that are done on a deployment. Daryl said that this was kind of the best case for a first deployment because he got to see all over the world and not everyone's first deployment was like that. That deployment, when I look back on it, you know, in a, in a six-month period, we, you know, started to f- fulfill this desire to travel the world and to fly operationally. You know, we were enforcing the no-fly zone in uh, southern Iraq for a few months during that deployment. And, you know, as we came back, we spent a decent amount of time in the Mediterranean. And in one six-month period, I had gone to Rhodes, Greece, Corfu, Greece, Antalya, Turkey, Cartagena, Spain, like Naples, Italy, and all of these beautiful places through throughout the Mediterranean. And uh, came back and you know, to anyone who's in naval aviation right now, I mean, after 20 years of us operating, you know, in the skies over Iraq and Afghanistan, no one's had a had a deployment like that since. It was it was leave, you know, Norfolk, get over there as fast as you could and, you know, operate for as long as you could. So we would have been lucky to gotten to have gotten one, maybe, maybe two of those. So, you know, as a first deployment, it was stellar flying, you know, all the time, got very comfortable 
you know, with the various mission sats that we had in that airplane and saw, you know, probably eight countries in there. So it was very exciting. So one thing that I want to point out here is that Daryl is gaining his experience as a combat pilot, right? In his first deployment. I mean, he was he was raised as a Navy pilot at a probably a really exciting time for people deployed in the Navy. There was a lot going on in the world. However, I want you to start to notice that the way that he talks about the people around him, that is the sign of a great leader. It's a person that has the awareness of all in their command. And even those jobs that seem on the outset to be small, he recognizes they're not small. There are no jobs on an aircraft carrier that aren't important. I think a lot of times we, particularly when folks think about naval aviation, they tend to, you know, we we glamorize the, you know, the planes themselves. But, you know, really it's that ship is full of 3,500 people who choose difficult every single day, whether it's the 18-year-old sailor who turns the ship into the wind, whether it's the 19-year-old plane captain who wipes it down and ensures it's fueled accurately, or whether it's someone in the nuclear plant to create this, you know, the steam for propulsion or for the catapults. And, you know, it's being successful in here. There is a lot of, you need to get really comfortable with the monotony of success. We do the same things over and over again, and we do them with, with checklists. We do them with standard procedures, but to really, really do this well and to do it at a high level, we have a lot of things that we do over and over again, which can kind of be monotonous. I think when th- people think about flying off aircraft carriers, they think about how, you know, and certainly the, you know, the missions themselves at times get uh, exciting. And when they do, they get exciting very quickly, but most of it is, you know, monotony and you need to, you need to make peace with that. All right, Stop. Like, if you missed what he just said, I'm going to shine a light on it. Don't worry. Stay with me here. He said that you would think every moment is just pure action. It's, it's all a Jack Ryan movie. However, my word's not his. However, he said that m- you've got to make peace with the repetitious boredom, with the monotony of preparing, of drilling, of getting ready. When things get exciting, they get exciting really fast. But most of your time is spent preparing readiness. And he used the word monotony. This is important because in business, we often think we'll, we'll create a business plan and we think that that plan has to provide fireworks and panda bears and kiwi fruit every day, that it's always exciting. And here's a little secret. It isn't always exciting. The delivery of a business plan is exactly what he's talking about. We have got to get at peace with repetitious boredom. And let me give you a quick example. Consider an entrepreneurial-based business that requires daily contact of their consumer, right? They're reaching out and and actually having a a sales dialogue with their consumer. They're going to get a lot of no's. But if I stood next to them and they made a call and they heard the word no and I handed them $20 and then they made another call and they got the word no and I handed them another $20 and then they made another call and the person said yes and I handed them another $20. If we did that, how many calls do you think they would make? And the answer is they wouldn't stop. They would just make so many calls. But there is a delay that happens between a plan with lead and lag measures and the desired end result. 
And that delay means that we have to get used to the idea of delayed gratification. We have to really understand that the daily execution of the plan is over time going to bring the desired result. So it becomes critical to create camaraderie and unity and have a really outstanding culture among a group that's living in this kind of a world. During my first operational tour is when I discovered that empathy piece that, that I had mentioned earlier that, that came from my, my mother. I felt, you know, a natural connection with a decolate level sailor and being from a small town in Northeastern Pennsylvania, really, you know, I, I wasn't an Academy graduate. I didn't go to ROTC and didn't even know while I was going to college that I was going to be in the Navy. Really the only difference between me and the junior sailors who were, you know, working on our airplanes and, and serving in our squadron was just a little bit of time and some opportunity. And I felt a natural connection with them as people and people who had a heart to, to serve and to travel the world and better themselves. And so the deck plate level or, you know, the, the ground, uh, the on the ground element of that came right away. And I think it was towards, it was as that first deployment went on that I discovered that I had a natural ability in the aircraft as well. And, and as more folks started to check in behind me as new guys and new gals, I really enjoyed taking on the, the teaching role. And it was, it was, you know, at the end of that, at that first operational tour that my first commanding officer had, you know, selected me to attend Top Gun, the, the Navy's fighter weapon school as, as an air intercept controller. And, you know, that immersion into that environment totally focused on tax, tactical excellence and bringing out the best in us and as people and understanding our capabilities and limitations as of really of all our friendly forces, coupled with some ruthlessly honest feedback at the end of each of those missions. I mean, there was, there was a saying there, you know, at Top Gun that all the learning happened in the debrief and, you know, that brought out in me this immense hunger to master my craft, to communicate clearly, to communicate with clarity, to build in structure and order, you know, into uh, whatever I was doing. So the ground piece of it, I think, came naturally right away. And the in the air piece developed during that first set of deployments. So this is a great opportunity to invite you to move from listener to participant. I want you to think for a moment, especially if you're in leadership, what have you done to develop that? Seriously, I want you to take a moment and think that through. What books have you read? What courses have you read? I'm assuming that you're listening to this podcast because the people that we have here are leaders. And I want to shine a light on Daryl's understanding of himself. He's realizing that He's excelling in the air, but he wants to master this craft. And he also recognizes that he feels what I would call the call to leadership. I believe leadership's a skill. I don't believe everyone's born an innate great leader. I think some find it easier to connect with others, but the skill of leadership must be learned. That doesn't mean that there aren't those called to it. He felt the call to it. Do you? Are you right in the leadership role that you hold right now? He felt the call and 
evidence of the call was his desire to help anyone that he worked with, regardless of their level. There's a story of John F. Kennedy visiting NASA. This is back in the, in the race with USSR for the, the first ones to land on the moon. And there's a janitor that's sweeping the floor. And he says, excuse me, what do you do here? And it's funny. If you only knew that much, you would think, is it not obvious? I sweep the floor. But the janitor responded, I'm putting a man on the moon. Everyone in your company has an important role to play. And they will bring their best when they are treated that way. That's what a leader does. Now, crazies like Daryl, and I would put myself in this category, people that are completely addicted to learning, crazies like us love to lean in heavy, especially when it's difficult. And I asked Daryl, what was Top Gun like? In my mind, it was all beach volleyball and beautiful instructors, but I'm certain Hollywood missed a lot. It was a 12 or 13 week course, and they were probably at a minimum 12 hour days. And you know, showing up to, to perform at that level every single day over, you know, over time where we would study a new system or a new tactic and then go and fly it and rigorously critique ourselves and come back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And to bring that level of performance every day for, you know, the 12 or, or so weeks that we were out there was the, you know, was the most difficult part because it increased in, in complexity and difficulty as, as we went along. You know, it was it was kind of like this. Uh, the class was, you know, we we were gathering strength as we went, and uh, you know, feeling you, that you were at the the top of your game, going through the most rigorous and difficult training that naval aviation had was uh, very fulfilling. One of the things that I find really interesting about the Navy's method of preparing and raising leaders is that people are going through training at the exact time they are serving. And I think that's important. I'm, I invite you to take a look at your company, take a look at your business. What is it that you're doing to facilitate the production of leaders? How are you growing leaders? Because it was very clear to me in this conversation with Daryl that there was a path equal to Daryl's ambition to master his craft. He would go on multiple deployments. He would find himself in Washington, where he worked on the staff of Naval Operations. And there, as a, as a junior officer, in his words, someone with a lower pay grade, he got to be a part of the process of placement for all the admirals in the Navy. He said it was an incredible exposure to people at that level and thinking at that level. It was during this period of time that he met his beautiful wife, Kate, and eventually would find himself in the Pentagon. I then left and went to the Pentagon for two and a half years uh, to serve on the staff of uh, the Secretary of Defense and had the privilege to serve three secretaries while I was there and um, was selected for the Navy's uh, nuclear propulsion program, which took me through nuclear power school, a, you know, which was largely or which was totally academic. I went through uh, about another four or five month period where I learned how to stand watch and operate a nuclear power plant and then went out aboard uh, the USS Theodore Roosevelt and spent a month underway learning how the aircraft carriers, nuclear power plants operate, all to set me up to be the executive officer of the USS George Washington, which I did for just under two years 
I then left and commanded uh, the USS Lewis B. Puller, which is one of the Navy's expeditionary support bases, which is forward deployed to the Arabian Gulf and home ported in Bahrain. And I had just finished that tour in February. And uh, I've started my training track now to command the USS Ronald Reagan. I really get what Daryl's talking about because I fly to Austin about once a month. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed at all the incredible places that he's been. But as cool as the places are, what we're seeing is a journey of development that goes through lots of rigorous, intense training, lots of serving, time in the pocket, right? Time doing the craft. And then harnessing this empathy that he learned from his mother, this work ethic from his father. I mean, he has leaned very far into his career. And I think that it's what's developed him as a leader. I asked him, how do you define leadership? And I've never heard a better response than this. I think about leadership as the art of engineering success through and with others. I think we, we do that on, you know, I think there's a vision piece to that. It is the leader's responsibility to communicate clarity, standards, guidance, to set in place an organizational structure and operating procedures that folks know what's expected of them. Uh, so that every interaction you have cultivates and reinforces trust. So I, I think there's a, there's a vision piece to it. I also think there's an engagement piece. And by engagement, I mean presence, both physical presence and in the sense that you need to be where your feet are. So that being there matters, being visible matters. But what really matters is when you have that you know the people you lead well enough to know when someone's having a good day or an off day or to know that they're performing at their best today or there's something not quite right. So presence is the second piece. And by presence, that means, to me, that means engagement. And then the final piece is the results piece, right? As a leader, you're ultimately responsible for the results that your organization gets. And to do that, I think you need to know what matters. And I think you need to measure what matters and have ruthlessly honest feedback about how to improve and uh, continually get better. Well, did you get that? There was a lot there. It's a leader's job to be engaged with the organization, to receive brutally honest feedback. Did you catch that? I want you to think of the leaders that have been impactful in your life. Were they open to brutally honest feedback or did they, did they get defensive? Did they get upset? Did they come at you if feedback was given? Now you've got to have the right environment for that. But if your environment is the type of environment that supports the level of leadership that Daryl's describing, then everyone is going to benefit from brutal honesty because there is a lot at stake. My partner in business has an amazing podcast with my other part, one of my other partners in business. So Gary Keller and Jay Papazon have the Think Like a CEO podcast. It's wonderful. You should go listen to it. Season two is perhaps the greatest explanation of business, especially entrepreneurial business I've ever heard. But Gary talks about that it's a leader's role to build the team, to cast the vision, and to provide the energy. And the energy comes through engagement. I think Daryl is right on. So it was natural to then ask him, 
What can you tell us about building effective teams? We've had great people on this podcast that are specialists in this. Liz Wiseman from Multipliers. We've had great people. Listen to Daryl's description of how you build an effective team. I look for a team member who is trying to bring their best. You know, I mentioned my music background earlier. I'm looking for somebody who's going to respond and provide their best art when I am noticing them performing to standards when they are when I acknowledge what it is that they're bringing every day and they respond and align to that. And you can tell when somebody locks in on a vision and is executing the mission in accordance with and looking for that feedback that yes, that is how we should be operating. And I think the leader owes the organization at that point, a focal point, right? As I was going through music school, I would, it was the conductor who did that. And it was a neat model to learn leadership in because when you would see the conductor of an orchestra come out, they went through all the standards and expectations in rehearsal. When it's time to perform, they don't say a word. Everybody knows what to do. Everybody's got the sheets of music in front of them. They come out, the conductor raises their hands, giving everybody the idea that it's go time. And that from that first movement comes this flurry of sound that's just beautiful. And at that point, the conductor is looking around the room and the vision piece of that, when the conductor's waving his arms, if they don't step to that podium with a vision in mind of what it's supposed to sound like when they start to conduct, at that point, they cease being a leader and at best, they're a cheerleader, right? And cheerleaders are great. Like, you know, everybody playing football gets fired up because they lead them in cheers on the sideline, but you can't confuse that with being the quarterback or the head coach. In this case, the leader of the organization of any type has to know what it looks like when that team is performing well. And then the engagement and the presence piece of that is noticing right? Giving everybody a focal point to say, hey, and from measures five to nine, the focus is on Abe. Everybody listen to Abe, right? We're all going to sync up to what Abe is doing. And Abe, I want you to play that line so smoothly, right? And once you're done, you're going to hand that off to to another part. So I'm looking for people in the organization who are going to, who are going to latch on to what those focal points are. You know, it may be launching an aircraft, at 12 o'clock, it may be conducting another mission, whatever it happens to be, but for everybody to rally around and synchronize around those, those focal points. And then the day becomes a matter of stringing those focal points together as best we can. I love the analogy of the conductor and he is the one, or she is the one that leads everyone while they're rehearsing. However, Daryl said, if they cannot hear the music in their head the way it's supposed to sound before they go out there, then they're cheerleading. So take a look at your business plan. How clear is it? We have business models that guide the way that we train and coach companies. And one of them, which is the one that houses the business plan and the five-year vision, kind of those things, is called Fight for Clarity. And it is a fight. It takes a lot of energy. But if you as the leader don't have clarity on that plan and you're not able to convey it to the team that you have, you become a cheerleader. And when you're a cheerleader, you lose talent. If you don't have a vision of who's supposed to be doing what at one time, true artists are going to recognize 
when you don't know what it is they just brought forth. And that that is going to cause the organization to disengage or maybe not quite put forward quite as much effort next time. So if you don't know who is supposed to be leading, you know, have the piece of the evolution that everyone else is to synchronize to, the cost at that point becomes those people being disengaged. And I mean, when you look at the, you know, the Pew research of how many folks are, are disengaged at work on any given day, that I think is a, is a function of not having the vision and not being engaged to recognize people performing their best and giving their best effort. The research that he just referenced is astounding. The level of people that are actively disengaged in the workforce today. It's gross. I'm not even going to say it here. Go look it up. (laughs) The truth is, this is what happens when you don't have a compelling vision. You don't have a, a culture where people know that they can bring their best work, that they can be part of something that's important, that matters. These are the things that create engagement in today's workforce and, as you can clearly see, in today's military operations. So I asked Daryl, what do you do to continue to further your education? It's my hobby. It's my passion. It's my calling to try and continually improve. And while I was out on deployment, I started to go through through this thought exercise of, as I mentioned earlier, where, where I said I, I viewed leadership as the art of engineering success through and with others. And I thought, well, well, how do you do that? And I'd listened to Gary Keller talk a lot about leadership fundamentally being training and that you're teaching people how to think. Well, how do you do that? Well, you learn to ask better questions as a leader. And as I started to investigate how to do that, I very quickly came across you and your team and had reached out to you and found so much value in the content that you put out. I went through the course that really resonated with me was the coach approach. And it was, it was largely for reasons that I talked about in the beginning of this, you know, growing up playing sports. I mean, I still keep in touch with my, with my coaches from high school and I started to implement all that I was reading about in the one thing and through what I was going through in your class and just wherever there were opportunities, rather than tell someone what, tell someone what to do. You can build an organization where you as the senior most person or the most experienced person can tell everybody what it is you want them to do every day, but everyone else gets so much more enjoyment out of feelings of autonomy, you know, enjoyment and satisfaction out of feelings of autonomy that I found what was really helpful to me was to find that one question that would just unlock for them. Uh, what it was they needed to do and the way you get about a task after you decide that's the best way forward is completely different than the way you get after a task when someone, you know, there are a lot of hardworking, smart, intelligent people who will show up and, and get after what it is, whatever it is you would like them to, but the way someone does that when it's, when it's their idea. And what I found was the better the questions I asked, the better the results I got. I'm very humbled. I'm humbled by anyone that finds value in our courses. I'm also grateful that these are things that have helped Daryl in his service. You know, this is, this is his own personal journey. This is not an endorsement of the Navy. 
for the classes that we teach. But as you can see, our focus on helping leaders become great coaches has an absolute positive effect on the culture and the improvement of a company. In fact, I was going to speak to a bunch of business owners. There's maybe 300 in the room. And as I was flying out to Florida for that opportunity, I sent a text to Daryl and asked him, from your perspective, I mean, it was kind of casual, right? From your perspective, what's a healthy company culture? I'm going to read this. And I want you to listen very carefully because I ended up reading this to this group. This is really amazing. What's a healthy company culture? Here is what he says. A healthy and productive culture is where people can do their best, perform their best, and inspired to do their best work. Leaders create the space and opportunity for that to happen when they tend to their work environment like a gardener tends to his garden, cultivating the soil, weeding, watering, so their seeds can grow. Leaders don't need to directly produce the results, but they have primary responsibility for cultivating and protecting a healthy and productive company culture. Practically, that means creating an environment where leaders exemplify and encourage the behaviors they expect, and everyone protects the health of the group interactions. I shared with Daryl how impactful that was to those that I met with, and he said that the idea for this came from an incredible leadership book called Team of Teams, which I was fortunate he sent me a copy. I would recommend it to you. It's a great book, Team of Teams. Well, I hope you learned as much from Daryl as I did. We could have gone on for hours. I just find him fascinating and really appreciate the time that he spent with us. Well, there you have it, folks. If you're a business leader and you'd like to know what hiring a coach would look like for you and your organization, just head over to mymapscoach.com and let's set up a meeting. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us an honest review. I promise you, we read all of them and it really helps us in our mission to help others. I hope you've enjoyed our time together and I hope you'll join us next time as we continue to explore the stories of extraordinary individuals who choose difficult. 